This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. N Plus One's new issue, Get Help, is available in print and online and has loads of great pieces, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Mark Engler's Spanish for Vietnam on the legacy of the Central American Solidarity Movement. Engler takes us to the origins of the movement in the 1980s when, quote, tens of thousands of Americans joined together to oppose their government's policies in El Salvador. Shaped by the international human rights movement and with a strong religious component, the Solidarity Movement is often remembered as a, quote, cautious, liberal, and humanitarian version of anti-interventionism. But Angler interprets it as a hopeful model for contemporary organizing efforts. As he explains it, the, quote, events in El Salvador became for thousands of Americans a gateway to taking action, attending protests against the government, denouncing state propaganda, sympathizing with foreign insurgents, illegally harboring refugees, that might previously have been unimaginable. This month, Dig listeners can take 25% off a year subscription to N Plus One. Go to N Plus One Mag slash The Dig to subscribe and enter The Dig at checkout. You'll get three issues plus full access to the magazine's online archive and free entry to readings and events, all for less than $3 a month. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash The Dig. And at checkout, enter The Dig with no spaces. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm currently broadcasting from my friend's walk-in closet in New Orleans. I was on my book tour, but some bad, unsurprising news. All of my Texas book events next week for all-American nativism, Houston, McAllen, San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, all are postponed due to coronavirus. If there is still a United States of America and whatnot in the fall, I will be coming back to Texas to do these events. Tomorrow, I'm setting off on a long and unexpected road trip back to Providence. Social distance equals solidarity. Everyone, please be safe. We are truly all in this together in every possible sense. The short interview I posted yesterday with Ilan Omar was preceded by a lengthy monologue on the state of everything, so I'll keep this introduction to today's longer interview short. In recent weeks, reading Ryan Grimm's book, We've Got People, has been profoundly clarifying this sharp analysis of the recent history that brought us to this present moment. We conducted this interview on Monday before Tuesday's bleak election results, but very much anticipating them. 
And so I'll just briefly summarize a part of what I said yesterday. The test of a movement is how it confronts tough times. Do not be a fair-weather friend to socialism. We are still in this race, but then generally, more importantly, our movement is still orders of magnitude more powerful than any of us could have envisioned just a few years ago. We now confront a set of emerging and interlinked public health, economic, political, and ecological crises. They will present many dangers and many opportunities, and we need to be more focused and organized than ever before. Briefly, please support the dig that you love with the money that you have at patreon.com slash the dig. We also send you cool left-wing books in the mail if you donate at least $10 a month. Take a second if you're at your computer. If you're not, make a mental note and go to patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's my interview with Ryan Grimm, the author of We've Got People, from Jesse Jackson to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, The End of Big Money, and The Rise of a Movement. Ryan is the Washington bureau chief for The Intercept and a contributor to the Young Turks Network. Ryan Grimm, welcome back to The Dig. It's good to be back. Rahm Emanuel is your book's central villain. And what a coincidence because he's also a villain in my book, too. And there's a lot to discuss about how horrible he is. But let's start by talking about the core of Rahm's myth, which which really comes out in the 2006 midterm elections when Democrats took back control of Congress for the first time in 12 years. Rahm took credit, portraying it as a vindication of his hard-nosed genius and his strategy of recruiting conservative Democrats who could raise a ton of money and also out-hawk their Republican opponents. But you write that, in fact, Rahm's strategy cost Democrats a number of seats they might have otherwise won. And that also, very importantly, this wave of conservative Democrats he did help win ended up being hostile to both health care reform and the economic recovery under Obama, factors that in turn created the conditions that allowed for the Tea Party revolt to sweep Congress in 2010. Explain how 2006 made Rahm's myth and then what actually happened and what we should learn from this discrepancy between Rahm's myth and the Rahm reality. Yeah, and, and the myth of Rahm is is also the, the myth of the pragmatic centrist Democrat, which is which the prag the pragmatic guy who's going to de- deliver the Democratic Party from the evils of of the Republicans. And one way that Rahm was able to spin that myth so effectively in two thousand six, and then afterwards in two thousand seven, is there was kind of a hegemonic control of of the media by the the Democratic establishment. At, at that point over its internal opponents inside the Democratic Party. Now, they they had to, you know, compete 
on the on the media playing field with with Republicans, but there was no kind of left wing pushback. You know, the the blogosphere was just sort of getting started around that time. The Huffington Post was launched in in two thousand and five, and so you you had the the beginnings of what were going to become kind of a renaissance of alternative media and new approaches to covering politics. But at the time, you know, whatever the New York Times or the Washington Post wrote became the historical narrative um, going forward. And legacy liberal media, like liberal progressive media, like The Nation, just wasn't taken seriously in Washington? Right, right. So you had, in, in these times in The Nation, were doing doing good work on the journalistic front, but they, they absolutely had no capacity to set a national narrative. What Not only was there an alliance between the kind of uh, corporate mainstream media in, in Washington and New York and Democratic establishment types ideologically, Rahm Emanuel was very good friends uh, with a number of those reporters. You know, he came up through the ranks of the Democratic operative class, you know, in the 1980s as a, a functionary for the, the DCCC, which he, which he led in 2006 in, in taking over the House. And so as that functionary, you know, he was hobnobbing with young reporters as, as they were rising through the ranks. And so by the time, you know, he was a member of Congress and then the DCCC chair, they knew him intimately. They, they knew him as Rom. You know, they knew him as, as this guy that they'd been budding around with since he was in his 20s. And so he effectively had an unfettered ability to, to shape the, the narrative, which the mainstream press was predisposed to believe. There was also a book where he gave access, he gave kind of, you know, fly on the wall access to a Chicago reporter to follow. The thumping. The th- yes, <laughs> called it the, the thumping. Uh, and people have got to go, you got to go see the, the cover of this book. Uh, it's just everything about that era. But right, so the book's called The Thumping, and it goes into uh, Rom's successes. But, you know, Rom's genius, such as it is, is that you can come away reading that book. And then if, if somebody asks you, well, what did, what did Rom really do? Like, how, how did he win this? You, you'd actually have to pause and think for a while because it's, it's not really in there. What is in there is his colorful personality and him cursing a lot and, you know, him crisscrossing the country. And, and he uses that kind of as a cover uh, for, for strategy and for effectiveness. And there, there are a couple, I, I go into a couple races, but there's a particularly fun one that gets covered in the book, The Thumpin', um, where he went in and the way the book tells it, you know, through a, through a bunch of phone calls, you know, he very effectively recruited this veteran to run in a, in a, in a district that Rom was targeting to flip, you know, the kind of, uh, kind of candidate that didn't have any you know, previous records so that he could graft onto him, you know, whatever the Democratic uh, platform was that he that he thought he should run on. Uh, he was a veteran, so that was enough. Like, this is this is going to be what the voters want in North Carolina. And, that, and the story ends there in the book. But if you look at what, what actually happens, it turns out that the local congressional delegation and some of the other, you know, party officials back in North Carolina had been trying to recruit a different candidate, a, a state senator, uh, and an attorney who had effectively been getting elected in uh, Republican in this very same Republican yeah 
it, area. In this area, had won like four elections at that point in in areas that were otherwise voting for Republicans. And he was a he was a progressive. Uh, he was kind of like a progressive populist type who said, "Like I'll, I'll tell you where I stand, and you like you know like it or hate it, but you're going to know where I stand." Kind of person. And he had agreed to run, but right before he ran, he realized that Rahm Emanuel had actually had recruited this this other fellow. So this fellow's campaign imploded almost immediately on contact with actual Democratic primary voters. He was not just against uh, marriage equality, but uh, apparently in some town halls uh, made some uh, c- comments that that folks there thought were homophobic, and and uh, and otherwise were were just not. He was just not remotely the kind of candidate that the Democratic primary voters you know wanted to see elected. So so eventually he pulled out. And so then uh, Emanuel tried to re-recruit this, this state senator who told him, you know, who gave him some, some ROM language back to him, uh, said, forget <laughs> it, you know, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is not, you know, this is, I don't like the operation you're running. So no, I'm, I'm completely content uh, to continue serving here in North Carolina. So then eventually a guy named Larry Kissel, who I think a local high school teacher, decides to run. ROM washes his hands of the district declares that it's utterly unwinnable kissel ends up kind of losing in a recount like by just a couple of hundred votes that november with absolutely no help from Rahm Emanuel, zero some progressive groups at the very end got in to try to 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 was when they realized the same people that had recruited the the other guy told these progressive groups like look this you know this guy has a shot of actually winning so these progressive organizations like move on went and went and pumped money in and then two years later, Kissel won, running again. And I and I asked the state the state senator what he thought about Obamacare, what he, the economic stimulus, all those sorts of things. And he was he was a hundred percent on board for the the Democratic agenda, which distinguishes him from a lot of the people that that Rom recruited. That yes, they a lot of the people Rom recruited did win. It doesn't mean that a more progressive candidate wouldn't have won. But when they got into office, then they voted against the Affordable Care Act. You know, they voted against or they pushed to, you know, reduce the size of stimulus, which, like you said, that's exactly what, what baked the cake for the, the 2010 Tea Party wave. And then there were a number of races that I go into that we don't need to go over the details here, where there was a hotly contested contest between a progressive candidate and a kind of a centrist ROM recruit. ROM would spend a lot of money. And the progressive would beat them in the primary. Uh, Rom would declare that race unwinnable. You know, progressives had, with their purity politics, had screwed over the Democratic Party again. And in, in three three of those cases, those progressives went on to win in the general election, and 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 served for a long time and served as as progressives. Elsewhere, they some of those came came very close. So there there wasn't really a media, an alternative media, to tell those stories at the time. So Rom got away just crafting the narrative that the only way to really do Democratic Party politics is to, you know, hew as close to the right wing as you can while not being all the way there. Did these reporters, did they also share with Rom this this self-conception of being these cold and calculating objective masters of Machiavellian real politics? Did they see each other as as kind of kindred spirits who didn't have time for the 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 sincerity and causes noble causes of the of the left yeah so there's a lot of cynicism uh in in the media 
because reporters day in day out are dealing with with Washington politicians and the, and the view that uh, you know a lot of the American public has of politicians is one that is often shared if if in a slightly more sophisticated way by re- the reporters who cover them on a daily basis and so the uh, the operative who who will acknowledge that cynicism and kind of validate it is then rewarded by reporters who say okay th- you know this guy he's in on the joke you know he he gets it um we're all in on the joke here whereas these these other folks out here running on the rainbow coalition or whatever else they are the joke like they 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 tend to think that you know you can have that you can organize towards a better society when really you know it it's all just corruption you know from top to bottom and which is one reason you see all of these attempts to find some hypocrisy among uh left wing candidates when it comes to to money and politics like during this 2020 cycle you had the associated press do this ridiculous story saying that you know there might be bloomberg might have his billions and you know biden might have his super pac but you know bernie sanders has sunrise movement and our revolution <laughs> and dsa and D- and dsa <laughs> dark money <laughs> yeah this dark money and and it's and it's not even worth getting into the 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 facts of of that question because it's, it's so transparently um idiotic but it becomes used to equate everybody see you know nobody cares about anything um everybody's a fraud everybody's everybody's a hypocrite and Glenn Kessler's maybe the most bizarre and extreme expression. Right. Of, of right. This. Yes. Yes. Just recently, he's saying that Bernie Sanders was being misleading about Joe Biden's record trying to cut Social Security over 40 years because cutting Social Security was because was it popular. should have been cut at the time, basically. <laughs> yes, because it should have been done. <laughs> That's what he argues. Because <laughs> Joe Biden was right and agrees with Glenn Kessler. So therefore, it's misleading because by saying that he wanted to do it, you're implying that there was something wrong with it when, of course, it was just the thing that had to be done. It's almost as though Rahm wasn't at all concerned with, with pragmatism at all, but that pragmatism was merely a pretext for his own centrist politics, which are opposed to left politics, but this sort of pragmatism and electability arguments, which of course are distressingly familiar right now in the Democratic primary, they're not really, they're supposedly not about the policies, they're supposedly about pragmatism, but they're always made by people who also happen to oppose left policies. Right. And the one way you can expose that for the fiction that it is, is to look at the ferocity with which they prosecute particular cases. You know, when when a Rahm Emanuel is going up against a, a blue dog who's opposed to you know, an Obama stimulus measure, or he's going up against a, a Republican official, for instance, there's a, a a softness to the to the competition, you know. There's and there's a, a kind of a nihilism to it. Like, all right, we're going to play our best game, you know. May may the best man win kind of situation. But when it comes to the left, you 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 see the ferociousness come out. Like you you actually see this this time with meaning. Uh, you, you know, you have you know in two thousand nine, Rahm Emanuel telling uh, move on and some other groups who were running ads against blue dogs that they were being quote unquote fucking retarded for doing it and all of his most intense co- contests and his most aggressive attacks were were on the left 
And that's been true you know, throughout his entire career. And that's true, you know, writ large of, of the democratic establishment that, that when, when they, when they truly take off the gloves, it's, it's when they're punching left. And Rahm Emanuel actually eventually apo- apologized for that one comment, but he, he apologized for using the R word and being ableist while kind of reiterating <laughs> that, the, Thanks, that the sentiment of it, uh, he did not regret. Glad, glad Rahm got woke. Um, yes. Great. <laughs> do, do you think the media has similarly helped the Democratic establishment launder its electability argument this primary when these, again, so-called pragmatic electability arguments are being made by centrist and conservative Democrats who are not exactly objective observers and clearly have an ideological and real politic motivation of their own? I mean... It seems to me like in the pages of big newspapers and on on cable television that the conventional wisdom that Bernie's not electable was just sort of repeated without much uh, reflection or or context or or skepticism. Right there, there was there was never any clean debate on on these cable shows or or in a lot of the mainstream press of the question of which candidate was more electable. Um, you, you didn't, you didn't have a panel that would, that would go through and kind of clinically diagnose the question say, okay, um, Joe Biden does effectively with this group. Bernie Sanders does well with this group. You know, this state is particularly strong for, for Biden. This state is strong for Sanders. Here's the Sanders argument for why he's more electable. Here's the, here's the Biden argument for why he is more electable. Instead, like you said, it was just kind of taken for granted that if you wanted the safe choice, then the safe choice was going to be somebody like Joe Biden. And, you know, if you want to take a risk, you know, and really, you know, vote your conscience and, and your purity politics, then you would vote for somebody like Bernie Sanders, when that wasn't at all the argument that that you could have been having. Like the, the Sanders campaign from the very beginning was trying to make the, was trying to fight on the terms of electability. So the, Bernie beats Trump. Um, was their kind of unofficial motto uh, for a long time, just trying to hammer into people that that yes, you can you can support everything that that Bernie stands for, and that's great. But but you know, if you're a normie Democratic voter, the best reason for you to vote for Bernie Sanders would be that he actually has the best chance to beat Donald Trump. But that was that was treated as kind of a farcical assertion on on cable news, and you know, it it, it very clearly did filter down back into the minds of, of Democratic primary voters um, who had made up their own minds by, you know, December, January, that Joe Biden was actually not the guy, you know, having examined him for a year, they, they made the decision that th- this is not the person who's going to be able to go toe to toe with, with, with Donald Trump and, and, you know, rejected him until he came, you know, surging back in a, in a three day period from, you know, South Carolina to Super Tuesday. Right. No, and I think that all has to do with how the very question has been posed, which has always been, which it's the framing of the question, which is always the best way to smuggle in and then obscure the real ideological bias, because then that's what shapes the possible answers. And the question that has been posed is, is Bernie electable, not which candidate is more electable? Right. And and you you often see the the party establishment insisting on having it 
both ways. You know, in 2016, they, you would ha- hear have people say that it was offensive to say that Bernie Sanders is is you know more progressive than than Hillary Clinton. That in fact Hillary is better than Bernie on guns and everywhere else they agree on everything. Um, in, 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 in 2018, you, you saw that argument relentlessly with centrist observers saying, look, all the, all the candidates, you know, in, in these primaries, they agree on everything. You know, why are we having this huge fight? These are all, these are all progressives. And lots of the establishment candidates were in fact, you know, endorsing Medicare for all and that sort of thing. You saw it extremely viscerally in the, in the Kansas primary where, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, you know, after she won, if you recall, they both flew out to Kansas to to get behind Brent Welder, who was a kind of a Justice Democrat candidate who was running against Sharice uh, Davids, um, who was Emily's List back candidate who had who had gotten in after Emily's List's first candidate uh, dropped out because she had actually gotten caught up in a sexual harassment case where she was the aggressor which made it unusual in the in the me too context and so the the principal argument being thrown back at at sanders and aoc when they went out to to kansas to campaign there was they're both progressive and one of them is a native american lesbian mixed martial arts fighter and so why on earth are you endorsing the white guy you know they're they're both the same at the same time they make the argument that the, the kind of Sanders AOC wing that their politics are, are too liberal, too progressive to win general elections. So that, that's why I say they, they insist on having it both ways, both that they, they agree on everything, but actually um, you're too far left to win. And, you know, the Sharice Davids case is instructive. You know, she, Emily's List spent almost a million dollars in a, in a last minute kind of bombing of the airwaves with a, a super PAC ad. And she ended up winning by a point or two over Brent Welder. She went. She went on uh, to win the general election, and joined both the Congressional Progressive Caucus and the New Democrat Coalition. The New Democrats are the kind of the Wall Street wing of the party, and has since very, very clearly, you know, positioned herself as as a centrist. And so, um, you know, gaslighting is overused, but you you see it going on in races like that, where supporters of Brent Welder. Are, are are told you know that they are you know that they may might not be outright racist and sexist but they certainly have issues around they have they have issues that they need to confront around questions like that like why on earth are you endorsing us and supporting the, the the white man in this race you know when when both of them are the same and, and ha, you know having watched the race these supporters say to themselves well they're not the same Yes, like Sharice Davis has said, she supports a lot of the things that Brent Welder says, but we can tell, you know, she's made it clear that there's a division between the two of them. And sure enough, after the election that, that you know, that, that crack widens and so much daylight bursts through it that, that there's no longer any question of whether one candidate was left and the other was, was to his right. But you're going you're gonna to continue to see it, you know, in election after election where they, where they have it both ways. And we've seen it this election, this and this having it both ways, at least in the primary, was sort of sequenced. First, it was everyone is the same uh, as Bernie, particularly Warren, but really like everyone, th- th- there was a, a sense that, well, everyone's embraced 
almost, you know, most of the people on His stage are embracing agenda. Medicare yeah. for all, et cetera. Why, why a need for Bernie then? Except, you know, if you really, it's because you want an old white guy. And then when that didn't work and Bernie surged, it became this totally contradictory argument, just like you point out, that Bernie's too extreme, so extremely radical that he'll lose. Right, right, right. So extremely radical that he'll lose by uh, embracing an agenda that the entire primary you know, cast had embraced a year earlier in, at the start of the campaign. Or pretended to embrace. Or, as, right, as, right. <laughs> embraced publicly, yeah. Let's step back and examine the history that made the Democratic Party that we have come to know and loathe today. The, the, the party you write turned to money and business in a big way in the 1980s, this moment when the New Deal coalition was coming apart, labor was getting decimated, and suburbanites supplanted many white working class voters within the party. How did the Democratic Party make this decision to turn to big money in response to the rise of Ronald Reagan, this president, of course, whose policies at the same time, we're making rich people richer, thus increasing the amount of money that rich people could funnel right. into politics. Right. And like a lot, like a lot of these decisions um, that are made in party politics over the over the centuries, in some ways they are they are following you know the kind of forces that that you describe, and in other ways, there are people actively pushing you know in a, in a particular direction, and in other ways. They're making decisions of which the consequences they're not entirely sure. So the, the the move toward Wall Street is is a particularly interesting example of of the latter. But it happened within a a conscious policy of moving toward corporate America. And so I think what a lot of people who weren't following politics at the time don't might not realize is just what an absolute wipeout you know, the 1980 election was, you know, everybody knows that, that Ronald Reagan, you know, knocked Carter out of the White House. But on, on top of that, 12 Democratic senators um, lost their seats, which is considering that they're only, you know, 33 up for re-election every, every two years. That's just, that's just an extraordinary swing. And it wasn't just that 12 senators were thrown out, but it was the, the types of senators like Frank Church, Birch by like Gaylord uh, Magnuson, like some of the, it, it would be as if Chuck Schumer, Dick Durbin, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren, you know, all lost in the same cycle. So, you know, stretching across the spectrum in some ways. And so, and importantly, stretching across states that we can't really imagine a Democrat being a senator from right now Idaho, Indiana. Right. Mm-hmm. right, exactly. And so these are the, these are the people who had been become synonymous with kind of the 20th century Democratic Party, uh, you know, establishing the New Deal, establishing environmental protections, uh, work, labor rights, and and they're just all crushed. And so it, it creates this huge identity crisis and into this vacuum, people who would later become a mentor for Rahm Emanuel. So Tony Coelho is, becomes this, this key figure. He had been elected just recently as a as a congressman from from California and he said look you've got this mostly defunct organization called the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee you know let me run that and we still control the House of Representatives because we you know they still had all these dixiecrats uh, the the realignments happen slowly in particularly in the house 
you know, let me run the DCCC. I'm going to go to corporate America and I'm going to tell them, look, you know, we're not, we're still the Democratic Party. We're not changing, you know, all of the things that we believe in, but we control the House of Representatives and you've been getting a free ride for, for too long. You want, you want access, you know, you want your people at hearings, you, you want input on legislation, you have, to, you have to pay up. And he created what was at the time called a PAC strategy, which basically today we call fundraising. He said, you know, you're, you're going to, you know, these corporations are going to create political action committees and they're going to give money to the DCCC. And we're going to hire smart consultants who are going to run sophisticated modern campaigns. Because a lot of the people like Birch Bayh and Frank Church lost their races because they were, they were, they were massively outspent. And you had the uh, Roger Stone style dirty politics that uh, the Republican Party the, the kind of new right had had perfected and the Democrats were indeed behind. So it, it was true that on the field of, of tactics and on fundraising, you know, they had been bested by Republicans. And so Republicans were going low and Democrats were going high. <laughs> they were barely even going anywhere. They were th- like Frank, Frank Church was like, look, I'm Frank Church. You know, I'm the, the guy, I'm the church committee. Ever heard of the church committee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, he was a leading, he was a leading presidential candidate in 1976, as was Birch Bayh. You know, these guys were, they did not think that they were the kinds of people that could be that that voters back home would believe these lies about them in these 30 second television ads, and so they were all disabused of that of that notion, and so the problem for Democrats was that it worked, or they thought it worked. You know, 1982 saw the the Reagan recession. And so you had this big swing back toward Democratic Party. They picked up a bunch of seats in the House. They picked they they picked up a number of Senate seats, and they they looked at Quelo and the other guys who had advocated the PAC strategy and said, "Incredible work, guys!" You know them, and you know they could put together reports that showed, you know, we raised this much money, we spent this much money in this race, and look at the results. You know, Democrats are back, baby, and so. At that point, they're just kind of on a glide path, and it, and it becomes entirely predictable where you're going to head. Even if you tell corporate America, "Look, you're not getting anything for this money that we're taking from you," of course you are. You know, very quickly. Quelo denied that the model corrupted people in this direct sort of pay-to-play way, but you write that he did concede that it systematically corrupted politics by narrowing right the scope of what was was possible. Yeah, yeah. So he, yes, he and others. They later later acknowledged that yes of course and one of the key ways that it that it corrupted politics was not in what was done but what wasn't done and so i think the, the example that quelo gives in the in the book is a is is a is a bill on housing policy You're like you know what i'm meeting with the mortgage bankers next weekend for a fundraiser you know do i really need to sign on to this bill that they're not going to like on housing policy or do i really need to introduce this bill you know, what's 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 one little thing that I don't do? And so the, all of those little things that you don't do just narrow narrow the scope of what of what you end up believing is is possible. And, and ultimately Street, add up to helping to helping to facilitate the rise of neoliberalism. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. And the, and the Wall Street case is, is really interesting because as they're hunting around for industries where they can tap for cash, you know, they're running up against their own their own interest groups. You know, if if they're going to the auto executives, then UAW 
you know, is not exactly excited that they're that they're getting too cozy with the auto industry. If they're if they're going to the oil companies, then you know their environmental groups aren't aren't exactly happy about that. Doesn't mean that they stop doing it, but it you know it puts a little bit of a of of an obstacle in in, in front of it. The the one industry that didn't have any particular counter special interest group to it was Wall Street, because Wall Street at the time, what, this is pre SNL crisis, you know they're they're still being kept in check pretty well by Glass-Steagall and by other reforms put in place during the New Deal era. And so bankers are seen as pretty boring. And so, you know, while some elements of organized labor, you know, will make an argument about the dangers of, of, of organized capital, you know, they're not going to, they're not really fighting you taking money from, from these banks. And so that when, as Democrats realize that they, they just start taking more and more money um, from Wall Street and from the banking sector, you know, th- then you get the the SNL crisis and it starts to come with a little bit of uh, uh, political cost. But now you have political problems, so you need more bank money. And the next thing you know, you're you're captured that you're you're taking so much bank money that you just have to keep taking the bank money. And now, but and then by the 1990s, now you're doing everything the banks want. You're you're deregulating the industry. And Bob Rubin's r- running the show and the Clinton administration. Exactly. And so then by deregulating the industry, you explode the amount of money that banks have to spend on political contributions. And pretty soon you're captured by by Wall Street and you know leading directly to the 0708 financial crisis. In this milieu that around Quelo, this is where Rom learns how to do politics. Also, Terry McAuliffe, the chief fundraiser for both Clinton's, who ultimately becomes the governor of, of Virginia, and also Nancy Pelosi's in this in in these circles. Yeah, that's right. All all of these folks have been around for for so long. Um, one one fun detour on on Rahm is that he was his first race was I guess it was nineteen eighty, and the Democrats were running the first campaign against a member of against an incumbent member of Congress on the premise that he was not a, not a good enough friend of uh, Israel's. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. You might remember. Um, but he was a Republican, and they, they would call him the PLO's man in Washington. Like, this is back when Republicans actually had open channels of communication with the PLO and with, with Yasser Arafat. And so Rahm, as a 20-year-old, kind of worked on this campaign and ended up being the finance director because he was, he was such a preternatural uh, fundraiser. And they came up just short against this Republican. But then Dick Durbin, uh, recruited by APAC, was able to beat him two years later. And it was really that APAC's, um, you know, APAC's first victory. But, but right. So then after that, Rom, Rom heads to Washington and he's working as an operative for the, for the DCCC. Um, Nancy Pelosi, you know, also rising through the ranks in California. Uh, she eventually gets to Congress in the late 80s, you know, Steny Hoyer. Um, in the in the early 1980s, um, so you and they're really all mastering have, the art of big money, right? Chuck Schumer first elected the, to I believe the state senate in 1980, and then uh, not long after that to the House of Representatives, and then to the Senate. And so they're all coming into their own as big money is becoming the way that Democratic Party politics are done. You write that quote. It was during the stimulus that Rahm's myth of Rahm Emanuel ought to have been exposed as just that. 
because as we've been discussing, Rom styled himself this and styles himself, I assume, this this master of politics who this idea that he happens to politics. But when it came to Obama taking office and delivering a stimulus that was big enough to do what was economically and politically necessary, Rom, this purported guy who can do anything, you write, portrayed politics as a force much bigger than him, something that was happening to him. How was it that Obama, our community organizer, president, decided against mobilizing voters in favor of the big stimulus that his own economic advisors insisted the economy needed? Because even Larry Summers, the Wall Street guy in there, was, I believe, supporting Christina Romer's argument Mm -hmm. that it was necessary. Not only didn't he mobilize voters, but he actually, if I remember correctly, pushed outside groups to stand down. Yes, he 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 did. Um, and Larry Summers actually deserves some of the worst opprobrium on this point because he agreed with Christina Summer on Romer the, the need. Sorry, Christina Romer, um, <laughs> different one. Um, on, on a need for th- this this much expanded stimulus, but then he brought his own pundit brain in and said, "Well." You know, the, I I don't think it's possible. So we should we should push for this, which is that's not what you want from your economists. Let your political people do the political part. So you know, Summers had already trimmed the uh, the stimulus significantly down by the time it even got to to Rahm Emanuel. Although Rahm certainly knew that Christina Romer and others and and, and Summers himself like thought that a, a much bigger stimulus uh, was needed, but. If you compare the the way the stimulus went to the way that the bank bailout went, you can you can see, you know, how much commitment there was on the part of the Obama administration to to get the get the stimulus to a place where it needed to be. You know, when the bank bailout, you know, first um, came to the floor of the House of Representatives, it was it was beaten back, and the the market tanked as a result, and they it didn't tank anything like it is tanking. Uh, today, t- taping on what's today Monday, but uh, you know it tanked in a way that's that spooked members of Congress. They they got uh, a lot of calls from back home saying, "What what are you doing? You know this is you know we need this," and they used that that panic and that fear to push the bank bailout through. In, a, in, in you know ten ten days, two weeks later, there's no reason to think that you couldn't have done the same thing. With the stimulus, the economy was so fragile at that point that if it looked like the Congress was going to reject a bigger, uh, you know, a big stimulus, that the economy was going to be looking at a at a great recession, and that would that would drive the markets downward. So you do that once, you know, there's a decent chance that you play chicken for yeah, a second. Really, this is how you, this is how you want to play what's this, required. right? And and you force force them to it. Instead, they they just they just never fought. I think when, I think for President Obama, it, it came to, and, and this is what a lot of people uh, around him um, say in hindsight. And it'll be interesting to see how he handles this in his own memoir whenever that eventually comes out. Um, there was a there was a real lack of confidence and an imposter syndrome that that Obama had early in his in, in his presidency, and which is hard to understand now because we don't think of Obama as as somebody who lacks confidence. And he you know, certainly came into his own more as a president and actually went for much further to the left in some areas later in his, his presidency. But, you know, he had been in the Senate for a year or two 
before becoming president. And he felt like he needed these, these steady hands. So, you know, a, he, so the smartest guys in the room, room. so a, he's already inclined toward the Harvard kind of elite, you know, worldview, but Larry Summers had served in the Clinton administration. Tim Geithner had run the New York fed during the financial crisis. Rahm Rahm Emanuel had, you know, worked in the Clinton administration six years, been in Congress, run the, you know, run uh, the DCCC, you know, had the reputation of, of being this kind of, you know, fierce warrior. And so he, so he goes for, yeah, these, these smartest guys in the room. And in a lot of ways, they, they, they rolled over him. Now he was, he was willing to be rolled. Um, and there were times that he had the wrong instincts, but there were also times that he had the right instincts, such as when he, you know, instructed the treasury department to, uh, come up with plans uh, to break up Citigroup, which... But he got slow-rolled and straight didn't up, do anything yep, about straight it. Straight up slow-rolled. Yep, just... By Geithner. Yep, Geithner just refused to do it, which is kind of Trumpian bureaucrat level of level of obstruction that, that Democrats, you know, mocked Trump for when, you know, some of his bureaucrats early on would would, would kind of slow-walk slow or, or kind of refuse to uh, implement some of his his more idiotic schemes. Um, but Geithner, Geithner is OG resistance. Yep. And, and, and Rahm Emanuel, I, I don't, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but when, when Obama, you know, instructed his whole team of advisors to come up with a plan around Citigroup, what did Rahm say? Listen to me. We're not fucking doing that. Your job when the president comes in is to talk him out of it. We're not fucking doing it. You know, so, something, something along those lines, always, always substituting bravado and profanity for, for actually trying to address a, a crisis in a, in a serious way. But yeah, he and, he and Geithner just refused. And I feel like that says a lot about the substance of the centrist establishment's intellect. Cause we think of, you know, Obama as, as this very, intellectual law professor type person, but it says a lot about not only him, but that entire milieu that rational analysis is consistently steamrolled by the bravado of someone like Rahm Emanuel. (laughs) Right. Right. Sometimes unsuccessfully, um, one of my favorite Rahm quotes when they're debating the auto bailout, Rahm says, fuck the UAW. Like what, what, like how how is that genius? How is that useful? What the like, fuck does that even mean? Like, <laughs> what? Do you, why are you here? Like what? <laughs> Who are what, you? What is that? <laughs> now he will tell you he supported the auto bailout because you know it worked and saved sure. the auto industry. But there were too many witnesses um, that will tell him otherwise. But that's a classic one because it's like, well, do you have an argument for why fuck the UAW? No, you don't need one because you're using profanity which is tough and cool. And so that, you know, that that's the point right there. That settles it. Luckily that didn't win. As the massive banner uh, on the building of the electricians union in Philadelphia said in the lead up to the 2012 reelection, Osama dead GM alive. Right. Yes. And I, I actually think that pundits have overlooked the, the value that that had uh, to Obama's reelection in Michigan, in particular, but also Wisconsin, in 2012, and the effect that it had on uh, Clinton in 2016—that you know she got she got no credit for that 
uh, rightly so, because I think a lot of voters, if they ask themselves, would Hillary have done the same thing and bailed out the auto industry? A lot of them probably said, no, she probably, she probably wouldn't have. But also, you know, it was, it was seven years removed at that point. And so a lot of those, a lot of those warm feelings, you know, would have, would have been gone by then, which I think actually, and, and probably unfairly, Joe Biden will get some residual credit for that in the Michigan primary against, against Sanders, because the, the Obama administration's decision to, you know, spend capital to, bail out GM, you know, is something that is kind of universally held up in in those regions as as a good thing to have done. But returning to the the question of what what Obama didn't want to spend, we we talked about the stimulus being way too small for political reasons, which is ironic because the fact that it wasn't economically sufficient laid the groundwork for political disaster in the 2010 midterms. It's not only that but ahead of the midterm elections, he took the lead, Obama, in shifting the debate, the economic debate, to the deficit and the argument that the government needed to cut spending. He said, quote, and I, God, I hate this framing, like any cash-strapped family, we will work within a budget to invest in what we need and sacrifice what we don't. And if I have to enforce this discipline by veto, I will. That family economics, that home economics metaphor. It, what drove Obama to reinforce precisely the Tea Party's message ahead of a 2010 election that would sweep Tea Party extremists into Congress on just that message? Because as you you ask, quote, just who is this hypothetical midterm voter who leans Republicans because of de- deficit concerns, but would vote Democratic if Congress trims a spending bill from, say, $250 billion down to $80 billion? W- what is this about? Do Obama-type Democratic leaders believe that these voters are real and need to be won over? Do they buy their own pragmatic argument on some level? Or are these centrist politics just their politics, like Obama is actually just a deficit hawk. I think it's a complicated blend of a lot of different things. You know, you have to, you know, realize that there, you know, people like Obama are hearing, and this is related to our campaign finance system, are hearing constantly from extremely wealthy people uh, who have an interest in in driving down federal spending to uh, keep tax rates low to keep deficits low or they think they have an interest in it because they believe that they'll get that, that it'll be financially beneficial um, to them. But it also just conforms more to their general worldview of, of how a government um, ought to be run. There's also, this is a time when Peter Peterson's money is mm -hmm. sloshing around Washington. Right. And and, in a big way. And there's also a, a latent, populist skepticism of of deficit spending that has been part of American politics since since Alexander Hamilton you know since since the since the very first deficit and debt and bailout happened you know 200 plus years ago and there are demagogues who are good at kind of exploiting that that skepticism that some voters have about deficits and and the debt my my view on it, which is which I in which I get into in the book, that I think is backed up by by polling polling data, is that people see debt the debt and deficits as as proxies for 
economic growth or decline. And so, you know, if the economy is sagging, then they will look at the deficit as as or the debt as the cause for it. Um, it's also it's right. also wrapped up, I think, in in views about American hegemony, the American empire, and and America vis-a-vis China. You know, if there is a big debt, uh, that's because China is holding the debt, and if China is holding the debt, that means America is in decline. Um, you know, our you know, and it's seen as implicated in the trade deficit. Right, right. They're, they're all, all those things are mingled together. When the economy is growing, nobody has any concerns whatsoever about the size of, of the debt and the deficit. And so his his advisors just, you know, David Pluff in particular, got it wrong. He was looking at polling data in late 2009, 2010, that showed that Obama was upside down among independents. And they, they said, if this continues, not only will we lose the House, but we will lose re-election in 2012. And so then they would dig into the numbers. Okay, what is it that the independents are saying that they don't like about President Obama? And they said, oh, it's all of the big spending. It's all of the deficit spending. This is even though the Affordable Care Act was quote-unquote paid for, you know, it was still seen as a trillion-dollar program that you know, is being foisted on on the American people that it, it comes along with the stimulus, which in a, you know, in a moment of, of political stupidity, they made have the same first number as the bailout. You know, the bailout was 700 billion. And then the stimulus wound up being 786 or so billion. And so the stimulus and the bailout, you know, wind up getting conflated in voters' mind. One is a bailout for Wall Street. The other is an investment in people in Main Street to to recover from the Wall Street crisis. You know, they they both start with sevens, and so there's all of this spending, and and that sort of confusion facilitates Rick Santelli going on CNBC to make his rant heard around the world, yelling mm-hmm. about underwater homeowners getting bailed out, which is not at all what was happening or right. who was getting bailed out. Right, it was precisely backwards. No, that, that's right. They so. They got all the pain of the foreclosure. The Obama administration got all the pain of the unemployment crisis and the foreclosure crisis. Um, yet they consciously decided not to address both of them. You know, they they completely decided not to address the foreclosure crisis, and and they only half-heartedly addressed the unemployment crisis. And so, yeah, so 2010, you still have 10 plus un- unemployment, and they're kind of reading it backwards. They're they're looking at independents saying. Well, that the deficit and the spending uh, are out of control, and that's why they don't like President Obama. But they're not using their own judgment to say, well, why are they saying that? And would they be saying that if unemployment had been driven down to 6% by now and we were creating you know, two or 300,000 jobs a month? Instead, they just took these voters at their words and what they told pollsters about spending and deficit. And so they craft all of this belt-tightening uh, messaging, and and the way you can tell that it was largely messaging is that they continued polling it for the next year plus, saw no gains whatsoever as the economy continued to stumble along, despite their you know massive change in in rhetoric, and you know a, a change in rhetoric that had implications. You know it it cut off efforts to further stimulate the economy, and so heading into the 2012 election, they abandoned it all. Okay, this this didn't work. We tried to win over independence by focusing on the deficit. We focused on the deficit. Independents are still against us. 
let's give up on that and let's you know turn towards economic populism and they and they ran this thoroughly economic populist 2012 re-election campaign against a gift of a republican candidate you know this this cartoon plutocrat in Mitt Romney and i want to talk a little bit more about that in in a sec but first i just wanted to highlight one other thing about this emphasis on deficit reduction is it not only was part of a broader politics that as we've discussed included not sufficiently responding to the financial crisis and thus helping to drive people to the right. But what also helped drive people to the right was reaffirming the right-wing framework of deficit hawks and austerity. You know, this is like classic George Lakoff, don't think of an elephant. And I make the same argument in my book with regard to immigration, that if you reinforce the Republican framing of these issues, you're likely to lose to the Republican because it's it's a framework that they've designed to benefit themselves. Right. And and if you convince the public that what is needed is is belt tightening and then that that's going to solve uh this this economic crisis that we're in, then a rational voter saying, "Okay, you want belt tightening? Cool. I'm going to get the party that has been saying that we should have less government spending." For the last couple decades, I'll put a Republican in there to balance out the Democrat in the White House. Now, Democrats don't actually, I mean, Republicans in practice don't actually drive down deficits and, and debt, but they're, they're, they're very good at mouthing that rhetoric. So yeah, so that's exactly right. If you're, if you're a voter who's being told that the, the mission of the government ought to be to tighten its belt, then why not go ahead and elect a Republican? But Ryan, the Trump White House has put out projections that the uh, deficit is going to be eliminated any year now. Excellent, excellent. Well, one one less one <laughs> less thing to worry about. <laughs> but but yeah, returning to the twenty twelve elections, you make an interesting argument there around Occupy Wall Street, which was criticized at the time and then since for its lack of pragmatic political engagement. But you write. That it did have a number of accomplishments. One, it laid the groundwork for the current left moment today of AOC, of Bernie, of DSA, and everything else. And also, you write that it helped kill the grand compromise to cut social programs that Obama was seeking to secure with congressional Republicans, which would have been disastrous as policy and politics and a vicious cycle <laughs> reinforcing the badness on both ends. But then, even beyond that, you argue that Occupy provided the 2012 Obama re-election campaign with the framework to savage Romney as this heartless and greedy financier. Yes, and they and they seized on it. Uh, you know, a lot of the operatives uh, are around Obama were just looking for the best message. You know, there there were plenty of people around Obama, Geithner, Summers, others, you know, who are were ideological in what in what they were pushing for, but some of his campaign operatives you know they they would have run on whatever they thought was going to win them re-election, and as um, Occupy Wall Street, you know, flipped the entire narrative of the country from one of uh, fear of of deficits to concern about runaway wealth and and income inequality. You know they 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 followed suit and abandoned all of their projects. You know Joe Biden's number one project in that first term. Had been had been trying to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, in a grand bargain uh, with Republicans that would also, you know, raise uh, raise taxes, which was, you know, it's, it's the last thing that the public 
would ever want. They don't want any of those uh, four things happening. And, you know, and the first thing that Joe Biden would want. <laughs> right. Yeah, the first thing that Joe Biden would want. And I mean, they, they weren't able to take it because the Tea Party wouldn't agree to the, the tax increases. In hindsight, and actually at, at the time, it, it was obvious to me that if Republicans were smart, they would have they would have taken it because not only would it have slowed economic growth and, and made it more likely that Republicans take take back the Senate faster. Uh, but then as soon as they get in power, they can cut taxes like they did. And and then they can take the uh, their cuts to entitlement programs uh, to the bank. You know, luckily they weren't able to do that. But but Occupy, you know, it wasn't even trying really to do it, but uh, did did blow up that that kind of Biden project of of this of this grand bargain, this super committee, you know, collapsed really as as Occupy was rising. As as frustrating as people found aspects of Occupy, including leaders of Occupy mm-hmm. that I know, I think it's uh, important to defend Occupy's honor. It accomplished quite a lot for a bunch of people who somewhat spontaneously in response to a magazine, a left wing magazine about advertising that no one had read since the 1990s, mm-hmm. you know, just all all emerged in these public spaces. And uh, yeah, it's not not a bad performance. Right. And also a, a lot of the, the criticism was was concern trolling like you so if nancy right. if nancy pelosi is saying you know we'd love to do whatever it is that occupy wants but we they just haven't submitted a, a list of legislation like okay so. or you should be registering voters instead of occupying right wall street <laughs> zuccotti park <laughs> right yeah yeah but it, you know it it pulled a lot of people into into politics and it and it gave people um a language to approach politics that 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 they hadn't quite had before. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Long Deep Grudge, a story of big capital, radical labor, and class war in the American heartland by Tony Gilpin. This rich history details the bitter, deep-rooted conflict between industrial behemoth International Harvester and the radical Farm Equipment Workers Union. The Long Deep Grudge makes clear that class warfare has been and remains integral to the American experience, providing up-close and personal and long-view perspectives from both sides of the battle lines. Both Harvester and the FE are now gone, but this largely forgotten clash helps explain the crisis of yawning inequality now facing U.S. workers, and provides alternative models from the past that can instruct and inspire those engaged in radical working-class struggles today. John Sayles says of the book, A capitalist family dynasty, a radical union, and a revolution in how and where work gets done. Tony Gilpin's The Long Deep Grudge is a detailed chronicle of one of the most active battlefronts in our ever-evolving class war. The Long Deep Grudge, a story of big capital, radical labor, and class war in the American heartland. By Tony Gilpin. Out now from Haymarket Books. Another thing I want to talk about with regard to the Obama administration 
is healthcare reform because you write that something similar happened as what happened with the stimulus, which is that Obama decided not to rally the public for a strong bill that would include a public option, but rather instead to attempt to win over congressional moderates and also to win over the very industries and companies that profit from our cruel healthcare system. Why did Obama choose that strategy? Though I think we're we're uh, discovering a theme here, right? And, and, and what were <laughs> what were the results, both in terms of the process and the politics, and and in terms of what the law ultimately was? Right. I mean, there was just a lack of of confidence in what was in what was possible, and also I think a, a, a firm, genuine belief that the country wouldn't allow them to go all the way to single payer, and then also a belief that probably you know single payer might be great in some, you know, utopian world, the way that, you know, Obama said, you know, if we were starting from scratch, I'd love to do single payer. Um, but he didn't genuinely believe that it was either, you know, a possible or even probably an ideal um, political outcome. Instead, he, he went to the, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, the hospitals, the device makers, and the, ins- the insurance industry to a degree to, and, and cut deals with them and said, you know, if you support a reform of the healthcare system. Uh, here's the here's what you will get out of it. Here's what we want back in return. Ultimately, the insurers lost out. They were they were booted from this this coalition that included then the, the drug makers, the hospitals, and the and and the device makers. Even though the law was to require people to buy their private insurance, right? Which yeah, seems like a pretty good deal for them, right? But <laughs> it it shows the way that that ideology infects uh, business too, because you, you could certainly sit them down and, and make the argument that, that look, this is actually going to be better for you. You know, insurance profits are going to be great. Um, you're going to get more uh, customers. Everyone 26 and under is going to be paid by their parents to be on their plan there. And they're, you know, they're barely ever going to get sick. This is, this is free money for you, but there was an ideological aversion to having the government, have that much of a hand in in healthcare policy because of a fear of a slippery slope of of where it was it was heading next but the system was also so broken that the other elements of the industry did agree that they would go along as you know as long as they could get their their payoffs you know for for participating and i think people who weren't you know 18 or so before healthcare reform may not you know quite fully realize like Obamacare is a debacle and it's a mess but before there was any health care reform it was common you know, so you know the uninsured rate was what 70 million and climbing every year it was getting every year was getting higher and higher now we say there's 80 some million that are uninsured and underinsured this was just straight up uninsured I mean I, I was uninsured for most of my 20s um, this was you know it was a it was a barbaric system. It, it's it's a complete mess now with the amount of premiums people have to pay, the deductibles people have to pay, which m- makes it almost as if the insurance isn't worth it. But at least bankruptcies are going to be down. And so the healthcare system was in such crisis that, that something was going to be possible. And the Democrats ended up doing the, the barest minimum of, of somethings that was that was on the table. During the healthcare debate, you, you write, the left 
did try to make the Progressive Caucus into a swing vote that could hold legislation hostage for a public option in in the same way that the Democratic Party right has so successfully done to push legislation and politics to the right, let alone how the Republicans' right-wing Freedom Caucus has done the same. But the left totally failed. Why? Part of it, you write, was dysfunctional progressive caucus leadership. But was something deeper at play, too? Yes, I think so. One of the one of the deeper things that was at play was just that they didn't have many progressives who were so confident in their position that they were willing to vote no. It's not clear that that exists um, even yet today in in the House, even with with even with the squad and some other progressives who are there. You know, for for a for a center right Democrat, healthcare reform failing is not a tragedy to them. You know, they're. They're okay with the status quo. Sure, get a little bit more money from Medicaid. You know they'll be they'll be okay with that. Um, but not getting it is, you know, also not that fine as eh, well. They'll take that too. Whereas for progressives, to it gets very difficult for them to be told, okay, look, you know this this will offer insurance for twenty five million poor and working class people. And you say, well, why don't we do eighty million? You know, there are eighty million who need it. And they say, "Well, this will offer twenty-five million." And then, since then, you're then you're left deciding, "Okay, do I want? Am I am I actually willing to take this down?" And so, one of the tactical problems that the Democrats had, the progressives had, in in two thousand nine, was that way too many of them signed this letter that said, "If you do not include a robust public option in the healthcare reform, we will vote no." And fifty, sixty plus members of the progressive caucus signed this thing. And so you take one look at that letter and you're like there's no way on God's green earth that 60 plus of these folks are actually going to follow through with this. If if they had four because they'd done nothing like that before. Right, they ne- never never really. Now Russ Feingold and voted cuz no. like you said it's easier to credibly threaten it's easier to credibly threaten to shoot the hostage when you actually sort of enjoy shooting people. right yeah if you don't mind that the hostage dies um then yeah you, you actually they they might actually <laughs> shoot that hostage but for these progressives to to say that they're going to take down healthcare reform the only potential would have been if you could get two or three who would say let's say three of them say we three are going to band together that may have been even too much to try to do but you know there, there's a paradox in in threats like that where the the smaller the number, the the more credible the threat is, and that's something that the that the Freedom Caucus learned, and you know that's that was the kind of the Tea Party Caucus, and they would they don't allow any more than what is twenty or twenty five members into maybe it's twenty four. It's a very small number of members are allowed into their caucus, precisely for those reasons of discipline. Uh, if you want to be in the Progressive Caucus, you just have to cut a $5,000 check to the to the CPC pack and say that you're a progressive. There's no there's no test or, you know, there's no litmus test, no no entrance exam on on how committed you actually are to being a progressive, which went in an era there are a number of of questionable of, of dubious memberships 
of, of that club. Oh, there's a bunch who are, yeah, also in the New Democrats. And, you know, in an era where it's, it's, <laughs> where it's like, it's politically advantageous to call yourself a progressive, then, you know, if I were a New Democrat, I'd, I'd cut a $5,000 check to the CPC also. Say, hey, sign me up. Doesn't cost anything other than this $5,000 check that I got from uh, Shell Oil just yesterday. What does the Freedom Caucus do by contrast to actually ensure ideological consistency and also consequentiality? Well, so being a Freedom Caucus mem- member pays electoral dividends, or it did. It was it was like this. It was tantamount pre-Trump to being like a pro-Trump person. You know, if you, if you could say you were a Freedom Caucus person back in these red districts, then you were less likely to get to get primaried. And all of the other Freedom Caucus people would defend you because a lot of them won in open primaries or or primaried somebody, and so they understood the power of of the the conservative base to to throw them out. So you know if they had this this protection, that really helped. And so and the way the Freedom Caucus structures its its votes, you know, if a certain number of of caucus members say that we're going to take a stand on on X bill. Then you're required as a Freedom Caucus member to take that stand, and if you don't, you're you're you risk getting booted out of the Freedom Caucus. And if you get booted out of the Freedom Caucus, you you're losing your your right wing credibility in the district, and so you're you're now vulnerable to getting challenged. And I think long term, they instilled like parliamentary discipline right. style discipline within a U.S. Congress that otherwise doesn't have it, that kind of thing. Right, and it it actually I think was ended up being a, a blunder for the party as a whole because it cost them you know this ability to to cut medicare and medicaid and social security when they when they had the opportunity right but they were the, they were successful and not only you know were they able to stop a lot of those those grand bargains in a way that the left um, couldn't do it because they were you know the the left was powerless in these in these grand bargain talks because they could always get a coalition of enough republicans and democrats to go along but with the Tea Party also opposing it, you know they were able to they were able to to knock them back. But they also threw John Boehner out of the speakership. Um, you know they were um, for as, as small as they were quite quite an effective parliamentary fighter. How did Obama and other Democrats remain so unable to recognize the nature of their enemy? Or is my entire question wrong? Is it did I pose it wrong? Did they recognize precisely who Republicans were? And as Cuomo, Governor Cuomo has done in New York, cynically used the power of the right to beat back the left. I think it's probably a little bit of of both, but I think some of the confusion is genuine. You you see it still uh, coming from Joe Biden today. Barack Obama said, you know, that if if he won re-election in 2012, the fever would break, and that you know. Republicans would come come back to the table. And Joe Biden has said, what, they'll have an epiphany? What was his word or something like that? So if you believe that there is a, a real old school Republican Party that is hidden in, inside this body politic, but it's unhealthy right now, either in Obama's metaphor, it has a fever, or in Biden's uh, metaphor, it, it's kind of delusional or crazy then you can believe that eventually this this body politic is going to recover its health 
and things will go back to the way they are. But if, but if you don't believe that and you actually believe that, no, this is, this is a malignant party that has had elements of this um, in it throughout its entire history. Especially since Goldwater, sorry, especially since Goldwater in 64, this has been a process of gradually escalating right-wing escalation that makes every prior moment of radicalization suddenly seem normal in retrospect. Right. And they confuse themselves because they they kind of look at um, the history of parties by following the party's name, you know, back in time. And so you say, well, well, you know, this the the party of Rockefeller, or even some people would say, well, it's the party of Lincoln. Um, Or John Lindsay. Or, yeah, whereas American politics has actually been quite stable, you know, when it comes to, you know, one party representing kind of Northeast merchants, uh, banks, pro, you know, pro-strong federal government, and another party advocating for uh, the white white rural landowners, basically. Now, those parties have changed names, you know, multiple times um, throughout 200 years, but but the, the actual positions that that have existed and the, and the like the players and and the interest groups have have remained quite stable and so for and and, and maybe that name changing has has managed to confuse people like like Obama and Biden but i, I just do think it, just as it has confused uh, Dinesh D'Souza viewers yes <laughs> it's inside the like, secret vault of the democratic party like, oh my god the kkk <laughs> like i i get that it's a little complicated but it's not that complicated like they changed names like, okay <laughs> we get it and and wait you know wait till you hear about the Whigs and the democratic republicans and the federalists and all those but even those like have, have very clear uh lineages with with the current parties in in, in the interest groups that that they that they represent and so that that requires you to believe that that some of this is is just uh, putting on a a naivete which actually kind of appreciates this check on what government is is able to do because uh like like you said with your cuomo example you know cuomo you know for years will say i i'm absolutely with you progressives um, but it's I just it's these awful Republicans. I just can't I just can't do anything about it. And I'm deeply sorry. Switching gears. You point to Jesse Jackson's campaigns in 84 and 88, which united a large swath of black voters alongside progressive whites and others. You point to that as the road not taken by Democrats under Reagan. They went the the big money Quayle way instead of the Jackson way. And that was a different path, you argue, that would have led to a different Democratic Party and thus a different history and present altogether. What did Jackson campaign for and what did his campaign look like and why did he fail to win? Yeah, so he ran on economic populism. Um, He decried the economic violence that uh, the Reagan era neoliberalism was doing to uh, the working class. And he um, was also directly confronting uh, the the farm crisis that was that was going on at the time, that where people were getting uh, a lot of farms were getting the farmers were getting tossed off their land, and and you were seeing a lot of uh, agricultural uh, con- consolidation, which was uh, creating huge problems in in rural communities and 
and throughout throughout the economy he had basically single payer healthcare on his platform he had women's rights gay rights um it was uh, you know effectively this the same campaign that uh Bernie Sanders is running now minus a a green new deal uh which you know the the, the full weight of climate change had not had not dawned yet on on the population but certainly you know environmentalism was was a, a strong uh strong thread of 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 that of that coalition and the the basic argument was we have enough people out there they're just not registered to vote and if you can get out there and and register them and organize them and convince them to come out to the polls then Reagan's margins can be overcome because e- even when he won in uh in landslide fashion uh he only won these particular states by you know, in the thousands or the tens of thousands of votes. So yeah, there's this um, incredible Philadelphia speech in 1984, where he says, quote, Reagan won when we were asleep. He won by the margin of despair. He won by the margin, the fracture of our coalition. He won by the margin of racial division. He won by default. And he then goes on. It's like the most incredible, one of the most incredible campaign speeches that I've ever seen on video, mm-hmm. he goes on to talk about activating non-voters by way of the story of David and Goliath, referring to all of these non-voting students, black people, Latinos, as rocks laying around. Little David, didn't want to get weighted down with a lot of foolishness. Little David, took what God gave him, a slingshot and a God biscuit, a rock. Our problem today is, David... We're going to organize Pennsylvania and win because we're going to stop the rocks. It's been laying around and pick them up. In 1980, Reagan won Massachusetts by 2,500 votes. There were over 100,000 students unregistered, over 50,000 blacks, over 50,000 Hispanics. He won by 2,500. Ted Kennedy State. Rocks just laying around. He won Illinois by 300,000 votes. 800,000 unregistered blacks. 500,000 Hispanics. Rocks just laying around. Yep. And Ocasio-Cortez actually just read from that speech in Michigan when I first you know, read that speech, I remember thinking this is, this sounds like uh, something exactly as Ocasio-Cortez would say it, though, in, with some Jesse Jackson eloquence to it. But that is the, that is the argument that there are rocks uh, laying around. That has been the argument that the, that the left has been making. And, you know, and, it, and it's, and it's, it's one thing to say that the left hasn't been able to fully accomplish it yet. The question though, what if an entire political party made that its project um would it would it be a sustainable path forward and we just don't know that yet right yeah and that gets me to my next question which is bernie has taken a lot of flack because the strategy has not worked out the way that he and we hoped it would and he's conceded this and eric levitz has written that the left has to win with the democratic coalition that that we've got and i think that it that this might be true in the sense of the primary, but I agree with you that 
a lot of Bernie's argument would be more likely to come true in a general election if if he were the nominee because and there is historical evidence to back this up we do have there was this uh a political scientist from american university i don't remember his his name but i was listening to him on on the media the other day and he was talking about how conventionally when you talk about swing voters when the media talks about swing voters they're referring to centrists who ostensibly switch between republicans and democrats but he was arguing and i I'd, I'd thought of this idea before, but his framing, I think, was very is very powerful um, that there's another set of swing voters who swing between voting Democrat and not and either not voting or voting for a third party. And those swing voters are just as real. And he said that when you add up the total number of people who went Obama to 2012 to Trump 2016, that that's a smaller number than the total number of people who went Obama 2012 to either not voting or voting third party. And so I think I agree with you that I think it might be something, unfortunately, that would have to happen in in the general, but that creates a a problem for for the left, like a cart before the horse problem. W- what do we do if we need to win the primary to expand the electorate, but we need to expand the electorate to win the, the primary? There are a couple ways of, of confronting that question. You could you could start with the the kind of difficulty that the the left is in. On the one hand, in order to inspire enough people to do all of the work that they've done for Bernie Sanders and to donate all the money they have that makes it possible for him to run a principled, you know, non corporate, non big money campaign, you need someone who is able to build that relationship of of trust. Building that relationship of trust with a kind of disaffected outside group of, you know, democratic leaning voters without, you know, so thoroughly alienating mainstream normie Democrats that they do everything they can to repel you is is going to be kind of the long-term challenge of the left. Because there is a, I think a lot of uh, Sanders supporters comforted themselves with Bernie Sanders' overwhelming favorability numbers. Often, he was he's often referred as the most popular senator in the country. Among Democratic presidential candidates, he had often polled as the most popular, both in in net approval and total approval. And and what was missed in that was this very vocal and influential group of disapprovals whose disapproval borders on on the extreme and unhinged like there there is a i've been to those places on twitter (laughs) you have right yeah it's and they're real and they're now you can say that they've been produced by uh propaganda over the years or whatever whatever you want but they're, they're real and they and they exist and they exerted their their influence in a very strong way on on super tuesday you know, they, they, looking at the possibility of a of a Sanders nomination, and and going with somebody who's borderline senile instead, which should give you you know it gives you a sense of the the depth of of the hostility of of some of these voters, and so you see, Ocasio Cortez, it seems like she's trying to navigate that already. She tries to craft a a left wing politics that is 
that is not overtly hostile to liberals and liberalism. And on the one hand, I've seen a lot of Sanders supporters really relish in the way that people who are hardcore anti-Sanders people online will publicly show support for Ocasio-Cortez. Like people, people love seeing that because they, they love then calling out um, the insincerity of the, of, the, of the person. Because how is this possible? Like there's no daylight between the politics of those people. So how, how is it that one of them is evil and will drag the Democratic Party and the country to complete ruin and the other is yes, queen, you know, go, go slay. Like this, <laughs> this cannot, this, this, this cannot hold. So what's going on here? At the same time, I see some Sanders supporters kind of getting mad at Ocasio-Cortez for the way that she produces that outcome that they actually appreciate. Like her complimenting or making a friendly comment about Warren's SNL appearance, an SNL appearance that I did find mind meltingly kind of tone deaf to the moment we're living in but i also didn't hold it against aoc for trying to keep her lines of communication open it's it's going to require a flexibility when it comes to political tactics that the left has never really had to employ before because the left has never been that close to actually being in power which so which is the good which power, is the good news is like we've literally never gotten this close right. Right, you haven't had to um, get the left hasn't had to get close enough to wonder, you know, what they need to do to get to just get over that last hump toward actually taking over over the party, and and it's it's easy to feel despondent, you know, at at this moment where this this opportunity that looked like it was in the left's grasp is as is, is appearing to to slip through it, but on the other hand, you know, if the only thing that is protecting the, you know, is, is maintaining the hold of the democratic establishment on power are older black voters. And all that the left has to do is to figure out a way to break even or win older black voters, then the democratic establishment can't, can't feel very comfortable because, you know, that isn't, that is an utterly achievable task. And in fact, heading into uh, South Carolina before Jim Clyburn endorsed in South Carolina, Bernie Sanders was winning among black voters nationally. So it's not as if this is some fantasy task that can't ever be accomplished. Um, And Sanders ran pretty close behind Biden amongst black voters in both Nevada and Massachusetts. And I just mentioned those because those are two places I I looked at the the exit poll cross tabs. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not it's not remotely an impossible task. Um, And then once you do that, then these the a lot of these suburban voters, they start to fall in line. Their main goal is is winning winning elections for the Democrats. They they concluded after Saturday that the way that that was going to happen was was with Joe Biden. But if but if they had concluded that the way it was going to happen was with Bernie Sanders, they'll they'll swallow whatever ideological objections and exactly go for it. Exactly, they would have just been just fine with it. And so even if it turns out that the media and political establishment were right, that that Bernie can't win this, though, you know, it's still happening. And I mm-hmm. think it's a mistake for anyone who's been watching this Democratic yeah. presidential primary to to say that a certain dynamic is locked in. And watching in, Joe Biden. And watching Joe Biden, who is like, and it's 
the story that has not been told, and I hope you guys write more. I know you'll be accused of all kinds of horrible things if you do, but it will be covered during the general because Trump will talk about it. Joe Biden's cognitive situation mm-hmm. and the media is not touching mm-hmm. it right now. I know you've touched it on Twitter, but I so I think that like even if the media and political establishment turn out to be right about how this primary shakes out, it's not for the reasons that they insisted on throughout 2019. It's not because voters wouldn't rally behind Bernie because they didn't like him because he had this hard ceiling. If he was winning, they would and did rally behind him. And voters do like like Bernie. The problem was that when the party consolidated after South Carolina, that made a powerful electability argument to voters. If, if the Democratic Party is the vehicle for de- beating Trump, then the party was sending the message that it decided that Biden was the one to do that. And so we're winning on the issues. People support our issues, but we're not but we're not winning like we we need to be in part because this electability argument opened a certain has opened a certain window for Sanders, but also created serious serious barriers that that this establishment consolidation I think made very real. I think that's right. And and I think we also don't know exactly what the conditions are going to be for the next this election and the and the next two because we could be heading into a huge economic crisis uh, because you know the, the the stock market crash that we're seeing is is not just taking a chunk out of some billionaire's portfolio and 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 taking a whack to people's 401k's who are lucky enough um, to have 401k's but it's representative of a of a collapse of the global economic system that has been built around unsustainable su- supply chains you know the the idea and they're unsustainable on a, from a climate perspective but they're also unsustainable in a in a public health crisis like a, like a pandemic and so it's not you know the the fed can uh print all the money at once but it, printing money isn't going to reestablish isn't going to reestablish supply chains and so that's going to require a fundamental rethinking of the economic structure and the role of the federal government in it which opens up possibilities um, for the left that that we might not even be able to to see yet let's talk about warren she hasn't endorsed and i think we can both agree that bernie if the situation were reversed would have done so in a heartbeat warren supporters in last year a major argument was that bernie and warren basically the same on policy and politics but from my perspective what we're seeing right now is precisely a reflection of these fundamental distinctions between them, that they're not really all the same. And you've gotten beat up quite a bit by Rose Emoji Twitter um, uh-huh. for saying nice things about Warren in the past. And I personally, even though I have very negative feelings about Warren as we speak, just like extraordinarily, and I've been critical of her in the past for her foreign policy in particular and her general more kind of technocratic theory of change, I don't think that she's the same as Hillary Clinton, just like I don't think she's the same as Sanders. I think that there are a variety of kind of centers of gravity in the the Democratic Party. But what do you make of Warren going from I'm with Bernie last year to, to right now, standing aside 
while Biden surges today. You've watched Warren for quite a long time from the get-go, really. I think people underestimate how much personalities play into politics. And one thing I discovered while kind of writing this book and going back through so many different presidential campaigns is is how how you see that over and over again. You know, you know, in order to be politician at all, you have to have a certain level of, if not narcissism, at least strong ego. And so as these people are fighting it out for the the very top job, the toxic way that the interactions unfold leaves lasting scars. I was reading uh, Ted Kennedy's memoir recently for some research for something. I can't remember what for. And he talked about how Jimmy Carter um, still to this day, well, I mean, Ted Kennedy's dead, but Jimmy Carter probably still says it, blames Ted Kennedy for losing his reelection in, in 1980 and just viscerally dis- despises him. And there are, there are so many circumstances of that throughout intra-party politics. And then I think one of the things that you're seeing, seeing now is a huge amount of bitterness from the Warren camp or from Warren towards the, the possibility of being the Democratic nominee and the president slipping, slipping through her grasp. Every, every presidential candidate who that happens to you know, it, it, it leaves a it leaves a psychological mark. I mean, look at the way that Hillary Clinton, you know, to this day is still giving interviews trashing uh, Bernie Sanders apropos of nothing. But the thing is, Buttigieg, Harris, O'Rourke, Bloomberg, all the all the centrists were good soldiers for their 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 cause, right? Which raises, but not right. Warren, which does raise questions about what her cause is or about her personality and temperament or about a yeah. mi- or about both of those two things. Right. So she's she's ranking as she's making this decision of whether she's and the, so the decision is not between whether she's going to endorse Biden or whether she's going to endorse Sanders. The the question is is she going to pull a 2016 where she stays out of it or is she going to endorse Bernie? In some ways she has already answered that question because it's now Monday afternoon. And there's a there's a do or die uh, Michigan primary coming up, and so even if a even if an endorsement does come at some point after that, you know she withheld it long enough to to make a particular decision. And so as she's thinking these through, she's she's ranking a number of different things. One of them, and this is why this is this is why the the Sanders coalition I always thought was a more effective vehicle for genuine change in in Washington than what Warren had been able to put together because her her base of more highly educated suburban voters are you know are just aren't there for the political revolution but at, at the same time there a lot of them are extremely hostile towards Bernie Sanders and so you have a lot of Warren staffers who are on Twitter in the last couple of days you know, publicly endorsing Bernie Sanders. Um, but you also have a lot of them who have not and who are, you know, internally making the argument for not doing it. Not not necessarily for any political purposes, but just out of this, Spite. this hostility. And, and and it's not just the staffers. There's a huge portion of kind of liberal normie voters who 
feel that same spite. So I, I wrote a piece the other day saying, you know, laying out the argument for why, from Warren's perspective, it would be better for her, forget Bernie, be better for her if she endorsed Bernie Sanders. So I sent this out to my newsletter list, which, you know, skews, skews older and more kind of normie, de- normie democratic. And so actually people listening to this show should join it so they can balance it, balance out the <laughs> ideological makeup of it, of it, of it a little bit. But e- e- email by its nature is, tends to be a more, you know, older and slightly more conservative readership. You know, if you're somebody who reads emails, you're probably over 50. In any event, I sent this, sent the newsletter out and I got, you know, a pretty hostile response um, from my own newsletter readership, which I, you know, I've been writing this newsletter for five, six years or so. And a lot of the replies, there were plenty who were like, yeah, good, good. I hope she does. But a ton of the replies were, screw him. He can rot in hell. And so not engaging with the idea of what's better for the left project, but just a straight screw him. He can rot in hell. And that animosity is wild because Bernie is so, one of the things that distinguishes him is that he's so resistant to make ad hominem, non-policy-based mm-hmm. attacks. That distinguishes him from most politicians. Yeah. yeah, and so that's the thing she has to rank. Does she care more about that? Or does she care more about kind of the, the broader left project that she's been in, engaged in, you know, since around, you know, you know late 90s, 2000? Now there's there's another fear that exists among among people around her, which is that Bernie but Bernie will stay in the primary until the the bitter end, uh, like last time, and that the people who have endorsed him would would then be stuck. A, a lot of people in the Democratic Party, and I actually kind of am sympathetic to this argument that he should have dropped out, say April or so after New York or whenever it was that. He wasn't going to win it anymore. And I don't say that to, to say that it would have been better for the party or better for Hillary or anything else. It would have been better for him because I think that those three months or so that he spent continuing in the presidential campaign created a lot of this hostility toward him among normie Democratic voters that did not exist before and for no benefit. Like I think the, the structure of a of a candidate that's calling for political revolution is going to produce some amount of hostility from the establishment from normie Democrats. And that's, and that's part of it. And you have to deal with that and you just have to beat it. But if you can avoid producing some of that hostility for no reason, you know, for no benefit, then you should, then you should do it. So that, so that decision of his is, is kind of coloring this, this current decision. So people, you know, so Warren thinking, okay, if I endorse, Am I then stuck all the way to the convention? On the other hand, who cares if she's stuck all the way to the convention? She needs, to, you know, how, how, how much urgency is there in getting behind Joe Biden, who she's, you know, entered public life going to war with? But then that goes back to what we were talking earlier, where for so many Democratic voters, the only thing that matters in the world is beating uh, Donald Trump. So, yeah, you know, it, 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 ha- it hasn't been terribly easy to to watch it all unfold, I'll say that. And, and there was a window last week where if she had endorsed all of the bla- bad blood, which there was a lot of, a lot of, it was circulating through <laughs> through my veins and that the veins of many other Bernie supporters for, for months, but the, uh, th- that would have all evaporated if, if she yep. had endorsed, e- even after 
she had gone headlong into Super Tuesday, knowing she had no chance of winning anywhere, and arguably, maybe maybe you'll disagree with me here, but arguably denying Bernie wins in Massachusetts, Maine, Minnesota, and perhaps Texas. And even with that, it would have all been water under the bridge. I mean, the Bernie left has welcomed Peter Dow into its ranks. Um, yes. Despite how mean people can be on Twitter, they're also pretty forgiving. So not only did she did she do what she did in terms of the campaign, she came in third in Massachusetts in a state where she already had low favorability ratings and where moderate Republicans do really well in statewide races. I don't get it. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. Um, it's 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 so obvious that you have to that that's your that's your window into how potent the other things that I talked about are because it is so it is so clearly to her political advantage and her future political advantage. You know, she'll be what seventy four in four years, as we've seen. That's not too old to run for president. And you know, in in order to to do that. It's it's hard to see it happening without her rallying behind Bernie Sanders unless she totally reinvents herself. And right. But if she totally reinvents herself, then that's that's hard to see too. And so the, the political advantages are so clear that you, you really have to then wonder, you know, how 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 strong these 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 counter uh pushes are around the 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 amount of hostility among her base voters towards Sanders, as well as the toxicity that exists now between the two of them. Like, it's, it's clearly got to be awfully strong if if it's overriding what is so obviously the, the smart thing to do. Even if you just look at it from a 100% real politic, uh, blood, you know, bloodless, self, self-interested yeah. perspective. Yeah. She, she's really, ironically, recapitulating right now the very sort of problem that first checked her momentum in the fall, which was trying to have it both ways mm-hmm. on Medicare for all and pleasing no side, the left or the center, in fact, upsetting both. And so, I mean, she's she's permanently at this point, point lost any goodwill from the left. There's no way that the Sanders base would get behind her in four years. It's utterly impossible. They'll be looking for someone else unless you know knock on wood bernie pulls Mm -hmm. pulls it off this week and then we'll be you know maybe getting behind bernie again but she's also yeah like like you suggest she's not gonna be able to reinvent herself as a centrist and win them over either i don't i don't think yeah i don't know yeah i think one thing that contributes to the mistake she made is that so she came in she came to the senate in 2012 but she was very active in senate politics in in 2009 while she was pushing for the CFPB. And so her experience with Sanders basically runs from 2009 until 2015 when she decides not to um, endorse him, him for president. Ahead of the mass primary. And, right. And and those those were not his best years. He got the community health center money into the ACA. He got a bill passed to um, audit the Fed, which, is, which was a triumph because it was this trans- ideological thing that he did with with Ron Paul but and he did the VA reform bill but he was he was not a kind of leading champion of progressive causes in this in this period of um, radical uh, possibilities and I don't know I don't know exactly why that was um, because he is capable of that 
sort of thing. He's like it as a as a member of Congress, he, he had a number of really fascinating um, achievements with amendments where he would kind of raise some issue that both parties have been trying to ignore for so long, and he'd force it through and force it into law. As mayor of Burlington, um, he you know transformed that entire city against the will of the of the collected establishment there. But what for, for whatever reason, the, those skills were not translating as well from 2009 to 2015. And, and Warren never took the time, I think, to, to study Sanders' career more deeply or, or to go beyond a kind of first impression of, oh, who's this, 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 this cranky gadfly? Which she really, and, and, and that's what she really thought really became clear in the recent, recent weeks when she started just attacking him using just that sort of language mm-hmm. um, right. with kind of a, a vicious tone in her voice. Maybe I'm not reading the tone right since I'm kind of sensitive to all criticism of Bernie, but it seemed it seemed pretty like heartfelt in a disturbing way. It, yes, yes. And, and it was. It was it was that, look, Bernie and I both had our chance. And, and if you notice what she's referring to, she's referring to basically 2009, 2010. Bernie and I both had our chance. I'm I did X and Bernie didn't, and that that is that is genuine, and but I also think it's a a misjudging of 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 the totality of of what Sanders is is capable of, and so I think as a result, she underestimated him, and if you lose to someone, you know who who you consider to be your political inferior, that only adds to the the bitterness of the of the defeat, which is in turn an expression of the very technocratic wonkiness that undermined her campaign because what it's not precisely what it's not recognizing is the political genius involved in transforming American politics between 2015 and today. Right. It's not deeply asking enough the question of, well, what happened in 2015, 2016? How did that happen? And it, and it failed to closely watch Sanders in 2017 and 2018 as he was putting together the effort against against the Yemen war um, as he was crisscrossing the country pushing back on the uh, the effort to repeal the, repeal the Affordable Care Act building out a, a you know a, a team that that showed that he was getting much more serious about uh, governing than than he had been in his in his 2016 campaign which which you know started out as a as a messaging mission and so, yeah, so it, that underestimation, I think, cost her, and some of the the anger that that you see comes from comes from that. The, the last question I want to ask is: in your book, you, you talk about how Occupy, immigrant rights movement, Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, Keystone struggles, this whole kind of cycle of struggles, built the Bernie movement, laid the foundations for the Bernie movement the emergence of AOC, Tlaib, Omar. And while I'm still hopeful that there's some path to to victory here, it has gotten very tough. And I just want to end by, by stepping back and getting some perspective grounded in the history that, that you've analyzed. Because I look, I look to the Goldwater conservatives of 64 who became the the Reagan conservatives of of 68 and again in I believe 76 but they didn't win until 
the 19, until 1980. To what do, what do you say to leftists who have poured their heart into this campaign, which I want to clarify is not <laughs> over, but mm-hmm. what I am worried about is if this does go south, that I'm worried about people kind of blackpilling themselves and taking things, taking their, their thinking and their politics in a nihilistic direction. How should people process difficulties, roadblocks, defeats, especially given the long game that we saw right-wing conservatives play throughout the second half of the 20th century through through today, really? Right. I mean, I'd say the, the right-wing and the, party, and the Democratic Party establishment, are they're not going to stop uh, playing. They're not going to. They're not going to stop trying to continue to push push the levers that are, uh, you know, e- exploiting people and are and are driving um, humanity toward uh, potential extinction. So, if they're not going to stop, then, then then nobody else um, can really stop. And along the way, you got to try to find you know meaning in the doing of it. You know, find meaning in the in the community of it, um, because it really has to be these social bases that are, that are forming, that are going to, you know, kind of create the, the foundation on which a better, a better society is built. And so the, the, the thing that you're doing, the, the building of community community, you know, is also, you know, a, a political act, which might have benefits that we don't even foresee as the, the institutions that we, the political institutions that we understand now, you know, may be crumbling all around us. But what we do know is that affinity and, and, um, uh, around community is the kind of thing that is, you know, always going to be effective at at pushing back against uh, oppression. And so, you know, as we're going to be seeing more and more of that the rest of our lives, um, we have to be, you know, prepared and organized to to grapple with it. You know, there have been, you know, people have been getting beaten on the left for centuries, for millennia. You know, the history of of the world is you know as it's written is 99 percent the the people with the weapons and the resources uh, dominating the other 99 percent with glimpses of of progress and so today's left if they do end up losing this this one here you know is not alone in having lost to people with the weapons and the resources but people throughout history have continued uh fighting and so that's as good a reason as any to keep doing it, I guess. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think the silver lining for the remainder of the primary is that our opponent is still Joe Biden. And that really mm-hmm. that really accentuates the possibility that that something unknown <laughs> might happen. And, you know, currently, as we sit here on Monday, the delegate count is reasonably qu- close. So what we're really looking for mm-hmm. is a surprise change in the dynamic of the race. The fact that we can't see what the dynamic is right now doesn't mean it won't happen. So there's that. Mm-hmm. But then if things do go south and Joe Biden is the nominee, that nomination is not a refutation of the Bernie and kind of left socialist argument of recent years that the neoliberal establishment is in crisis. The nomination of Joe Biden would be the most pure, extreme expression of the fact that the neoliberal establishment is in crisis that I could possibly think of. And so Mm -hmm. regardless of what happens, whether it's Biden or Trump with the spread of coronavirus and the 
very real possibility that we're about to enter into another economic crisis. It's more important than ever that no matter what happens, that people on the left remain dedicated to building the political power and institutions that we've built in recent years, because the power that we have right now is from the perspective of, from my perspective, I, like you, Ryan, was involved in the anti-globalization movement in the late 90s. As someone who got involved at that point, the power that we have now in the United States was inconceivable then. So I just urge people to, no matter what happens, not to get blackpilled and turn away from that because our accomplishments are real and the plausibility that we will take power sooner than later remains very real as long as we stay engaged. Right. It's it's mind-boggling that people like you and I who got into left politics in, in the 90s that uh, Bernie Sanders could have been that could and could it is still this close. He is the delegate. You know, he's effectively tied in the delegate race. He was obs- extremely obscure when he got involved in the left. I almost oh, applied for an internship yeah. in his house office, but I saw that he gave con- you know uh, consideration first to Vermont applicants, so I didn't. But he was just like a le- he was like you know mm-hmm. he was marginal. <laughs> yeah, if we can keep pushing through the those that twenty years of doldrums with wins here and there that are, you know, helping to move the needle, then anybody can do it. Well, Ryan Grimm, thank you very much. Thank you. Ryan is the Washington bureau chief for The Intercept and a contributor to the Young Turks Network. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts. And subscribe. If it is on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Huge.